Valley Not So Confidential podcast, and we're going to take a moment to introduce ourselves, but I want you guys to know this all started 2019 at this festival when we got sat next to this lady who we did not know, and all these years later, here we are, up here. <laughs> Scott? Uh, I'm Dr. Scott, LA Not So Confidential. Uh, we're Dr. Shiloh and I have this podcast. We did our internships together in forensic psychology many years ago, and everything that happens as a result is because of her. She made me do this, so um, I take no responsibility for the last five years of our podcast. Of your life. <laughs> My name is Amy Sloshberg. I am co-host of Women in Crime podcast with Megan here. Um, we actually both got our PhDs together, and then she hired me um, at the university we work at in New Jersey. But now I'm her boss. So. Absolutely. So a quick announcement first. I wanted to let you guys know that at 1 p.m. in this room, Nina from Already Gone and Julie Murray are going to be doing a panel. So put that on your schedules. Um, but let's go ahead and get started here. So we're going to talk about the Sherry Papini case, obviously. Um, but what I want you guys to do is take out your cell phones, first and foremost, and text, to, text Shiloh C840 to 22333, because we're going to do some live polling with you guys throughout this presentation that you guys will be able to see. It's all anonymous, it's I all promise. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get any text message uh, solicitations from us afterwards. Um, but we just want to get some feedback from you guys as we do this live. I can't wait to see what people think. Right. I know. I was looking at the poll, and the poll's wondering, like, people are going to be, you know, Yeah. So, so how, how many people here are familiar with the case that we're talking about? Okay, good. Yeah, great. Good, good. Okay, cool. For people who aren't, Amy's going to give a nice synopsis though. Yes. So with that, does everyone have this? No. You should, okay, I'll give you a couple more beats for it. So once you text this, you should get a message back saying that you're in, essentially, and then you'll be able to answer the questions through text message. And magically, they'll appear on the screen. Okay, magic. You guys are professors. You should be doing this all the time. Probably. It's a new version of that. You can watch a video. Two, two, three, three. Yes. Can I Yeah. Yeah, of course. Join in. Join in. Could you Not yet. Still got the info going. All right. So I'm going to switch it to the first question. Are you guys in? <laughs> okay, so just open-ended question. What sort of, of course, we're psychologists. We want to know about your feelings. What sort of feelings come up for you guys when you think about this case? It could be thoughts, too. But feel free to text as, as much as you want in there. And just want to get, like, a read of the room of... Oh, there we go. 
annoying, curiosity, selfish, I can barely see it, crazy, confused, anger, yeah, irritation, very nice. This is like a, a, like a living thesaurus. <laughs> we really know we're getting the beat on this from you guys, wonderful. Good stuff. Okay, so, and, and I'll switch the slide in a sec, but Amy, you want to start us off with the case review? Yeah, sure. Um, do you want to flip, or you don't have to? Well, yeah. Go ahead and get started, and then... Okay. Um, all right, for those of you who don't know, Sherry Papini um, was a young mother of two living in Redding, California, um, happily married for about four years to her husband, Keith. Um, we're talking November 2016. Her and Keith were married since 2012, but they were high school sweethearts who both had married someone else and then ended up coming back together. Um, so one day, um, Keith goes to work, normal day for the Papini family. Um, Sherry drops the two young children at daycare, and then she comes home. Keith goes to work. She texts Keith saying, are you coming home for lunch today? Sometimes he did that. He did not come home for lunch that particular day. So the day continues on normal. Keith comes home sometime after 5. He's normally greeted by Sherry and the two children, but today he walks home to no one home. So he's a little bit concerned, but he thinks maybe Sherry ran an errand with the children. You know, no big deal. So he decides to call the daycare to ask what time Sherry had picked up the children. Normally she would pick up the children around 4.30, 4.45. At this point, he's concerned because the daycare says, no, the children are still here. She never picked them up. So he calls his mother to take care of the children while he jumps into action to try to find Sherry. Luckily, we have technology, find my iPhone. So first thing he does is looks for Sherry's iPhone and he notices that it's pinging down a long driveway that they have. So he goes to find you know, where the phone's pinging to and he finds Sherry's phone with her headphones, like the, you know, uh, not, not the Bluetooth kind, the old school kind. Um, the wires are all smushed up on top of the phone. It's kind of placed down and some of her hair is stuck inside of the wires. So he's concerned. He calls 911. You could hear the 911 call. Um, you know, he says, you know, my wife's gone. I think somebody took her. So now everyone springs into action. Where is Sherry Papini? Nobody has any idea. She's seemingly just vanished into thin air. So. Oh no 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 no. Nope, sorry. Nope, no, nope. I just um. I just wanted sorry. to make sure. Okay. So then. 22 days later, so during these 22 days, there's federal, state, local, volunteers, everyone is looking for Sherry, this missing, thank you, this missing young mother that nobody can seem to find. She was what they called a super mom, doting on her children, so automatically people assume the worst that somebody took her. There was a media storm as well, right? Oh, yes. I mean, it, was on it was international news. Um, you know, we can talk about this during the discussion, but, you know, it's a white woman gone missing, you know. Beautiful middle class. This was big news um, for everybody. In a relatively rural area as well. Um, yeah. Highly populated. Yeah, not somewhere that things like this happen, right? Um, so 22 days later, a woman on Thanksgiving Day in 2016, a woman is driving down a highway at 4:30 in the morning with her daughter, and she comes across a woman who's in the street flailing, asking for help. And this woman would turn out to be Sherry Papini. So Sherry Papini, here she is, looking a little bit different though. She was only 85 pounds. She was only about 100 pounds to begin with, so she
she was quite small, but she had lost like 15% of her body weight. Her long blonde hair had been chopped off. She was badly beaten and bruised, bruises in various stages, um, a broken nose, she was branded. And of course the police come, they reunite Sherry with Keith at the hospital, and now the question becomes, what happened to Sherry? Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to do this, you know, you could always listen to our episode on Sherry and Cookie, where we get women in crime podcast available on Apple. No, I'm, just um, I'm just trying to not take up too much time, but I'm just giving you a little bit of the information. So Sherry and Keith are reunited, um, and I do want to tell you that Keith did make many pleas on, you know, Good Morning America, the Today Show, and as we always do, you know, people were quick to say he must have had something to do with it. Some people were wondering, was this the hoax? Going on behind 
scenes. Um, there was some unknown male DNA found on Sherry Papine's underwear. And the DNA did not match her husband. And from what she said, there were no males that were her captors. Well, it could have been, you know, one of these women, a brother, a boyfriend, a husband, because they did give Sherry clothes to wear, right? So it's possible that it could have been something like that. However, there's something called forensic genealogy that I'm sure we're all very um, aware of, right? We know the Golden State Killer was um, captured this way. So they ran, of course, they ran the DNA through CODIS, which is to see if there was any match to any known DNA samples, and there was none. But then through forensic genealogy, they were able to find a familial match to the DNA. And it led them to a gentleman who lived in Southern California, and this gentleman happened to have been an ex-boyfriend of Sherry Coutini. Next, they have to get, they want to collect his DNA, just like they did in the Golden State Killers case, because they want to be able to see if this DNA was, in fact, a match to this guy that they thought it matched. And how did they do it? Well, like, oh, they, they surveilled his garbage, and they matched DNA, and this, in fact, was 100% matched to the DNA found on Sherry Papini's clothes. They spoke to this gentleman, and he told them everything that they would want to know. Sherry had contacted him, said that she was being abused by her husband, she wanted to get away. This gentleman had a friend rent a car from him, he drove six hours to pick up Sherry, and he drove Sherry back to his home, and Sherry was in a room. It was 22 days, Sherry was in a room in his home, uh, windows boarded up as per her request. She didn't eat very much, um, she repeatedly harmed herself, she had him harm her in some ways, and you know she branded herself, and then at some point she said to him, I'm ready to go home and miss my children. Now, the reason why I said that this was only in March, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, this was in 2019 that they approached Sherry with this information, but Sherry doubled down. She would not admit it. Sherry said, nope, this isn't true. Nope, nope, nope. They were giving her a chance to come clean, and she simply would not. March 2022, however, that's when everything came crashing down, and they arrested Sherry Papini um, on the grounds of She's charged with obstruction of justice, making false statements, and mail fraud. Yes, you want to explain the mail fraud part? The mail fraud um, stems from the money that she took. Uh, she accessed money in victim services, uh, something around the two to forty to $50,000, which she, she actually used victim services, but she also used that money to pay for credit cards and other things. So and she stole her mail from me. Sherry did uh, put in a plea of guilty. And second, so, okay. sentences later. Talk yeah. about sentences later? Yeah, we do. Yeah, okay. This isn't all PowerPoint. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay. Sorry. We're going to hold it's that. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> probably the part we want to end with is discussing her plea and her possible sentence and yes. what you all think about yeah. that. So we'll save that. I see that Juicy did this. For sure, for sure. But first, this is not the first time this has happened, so we wanted to talk about some similar cases and how they were treated afterwards. Um, so Scott and I do like our vintage noir crimes. Um, so we definitely wanted to touch on Amy McPherson. And in 1926, she was 
She was in Los Angeles. She was originally from Canada, but she basically had a mega church. She led this church that was not only live for people to come to services, but really used the power of radio and media to reach audiences all around the country, also to get donations that way was, was really big. Um, but she was, she was a media celebrity, basically, and um, was leading this church. She decides to go to Venice Beach with her secretary one day, and she seemingly just disappears in the ocean. So there's a massive search for her to rescue or two two people in the search party die looking for her in the ocean. Um, there's vigils held every single night. Her mother puts up a $25,000 reward. Um, while she's missing, there's also ransom notes that come in, which were proven to be fraudulent. Um, but people were saying that they were holding her for white slavery, so interesting, 1926, um, for all sorts of different reasons. But none, none of it really pans out. And then five weeks later, she stumbles out of the desert in Mexico, bruised, dirty, emancipated, uh, emaciated. <laughs> She sort of like walks up to this couple's home and faints as she crosses into their yard and they take her in and they get her to a hospital. Her story is that when she was at the beach, these this couple recognized her and said, we have a really sick child in our car. Can you come pray over him? And she goes over to the car. They put chloroform over her mouth and kidnap her and take her to Mexico where she's held in a shack and torture for five weeks or so. So uh, Los Angeles DA is pretty suspect of all of this and for months holds inquiries into what happened because somehow the, there were sightings all over the world of her, but they kind of pinpoint that they thought she was in a city called Carmel-by-the-Sea in Los Angeles with her lover, who was a man that used to work for the church, and there had been some sightings that this couple had sort of hunkered down in this little resort and were there under false names as a couple. He was married. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the the DA's office spends a lot of time, a lot of money interviewing hundreds of witnesses. Um, does end up charging her and her mother, and well, they're doing the inquiry to charge her and her mother and some other people at the church with conspiracy, um, and and some of the similar things that I think would translate well to Sherry Papini's case of just utilizing these police resources. Um, but at the end of it, they really can't find enough evidence. They they really wanted fingerprints from that resort, that hotel room, something to link her there, but they could not. But because she was such a celebrity, of course, the media went crazy with this, and we know how salacious the media was in the 20s. 
Um, and years later, she ended up dying by an overdose of medication. A lot of people suspect suicide, um, but we found that actually when she took her medication, which was not prescribed to her, but she tried to call her doctors to say, I feel like I'm having a bad reaction to this. And her doctor was like, tell her I'm in surgery, I'll call her later. And no one ever got back to her and she died. So um, I, I think we can probably rule out that it was intentional suicide, but nonetheless, a really eerily similar case. She also wrote a book. She wouldn't speak to the police, um, but she wrote a book later that it became very popular. And she had she kind of polarized people because she had cults following quite literally. And oh, yes. so her her supporters always believed her, but then you had the rest of the you know world who thought it was obviously some type of con. Um, we have a couple other people up on these. Do you know uh, Professor Jennifer Wilbanks? Sorry, do you want me to take it? Yeah, oh, please. Okay. Yeah. Does anyone know what cannot know? You might remember her if I tell you what they, they dubbed her. Anyone remember the Runway Bride? All right. <laughs> so in 2005, Jennifer Wilbanks was living in um, Georgia, I believe it was, and she was engaged to be married. She had a very lavish wedding plan. It was something like 600 guests, which a lot of people. And you know, it was very fancy. It was a very expensive wedding. And she disappeared just a couple days before her wedding, vanished also seemingly into thin sight. And there was a national search launched for her. Um, it was believed right away that she was kidnapped. But also, um, suspicions fell very quickly on her fiance because that's where they usually fall, right? Um, and she emerged just a couple of days later. She called her fiance from a cell phone in New Mexico. And um, you know, they rescued her and she talked she told the story that she had been abducted by a Hispanic male and sexually assaulted. Um, her her story rang not very true. You know, uh, investigators very quickly determined that she was lying. She she cracked under interrogation and admitted she just did not want to get married. Um, so she just falls <laughs> And was embarrassed to call it off the line. <laughs> So she did not, uh, it was a false hope. She did not access victim services because she was quickly identified as being someone who was not telling the truth. Um, she did also plead guilty to a misdemeanor of making false statements. She got two years probation, community service, and had to pay back, you know, something uh, to, I don't remember what the cost was, but probably about $50,000 that they had spent on search efforts for her. Actually, hers was much higher. Um, of the search efforts. So that was Jennifer Wilbex. Um, we also have up on the slide with two more, Quinn Gray. Anyone? Quinn Gray? So she's probably a little bit lesser known. Uh, I just remember seeing, you know, probably a dateline or something on her because she hasn't seen that. She disappeared. She was a uh, upper middle class, attractive, white, blonde female um, who was also a homemaker husband works full time, and she disappeared in um, a suburb in, uh, she was Florida, and that was 2009, and she seemingly vanished without a trace, but then her husband was contacted um, by her, sorry, it's a little I know this one, I'm watching you. Uh, sorry, her husband was contacted uh, with a ransom to make of $50,000. And I'm not sure what the reason was. The husband wasn't going to pay it, didn't want to pay 
turned to believe she had been abducted. Um, I believe she showed up before he even had a chance to pay that money back. I don't know, do you, do you, uh, no? No, okay. Um, regardless, it was also, there was a search for her. Everyone believed that she was abducted. They believed the ransom was real. When she got back, however, parts of her story just did not add up. Things that she said. And also, there was um, a witness who was able to place her pretty voluntarily in a hotel with her boyfriend. So, she and the boyfriend were attempting to steal $50,000 from her husband and have just a good old time. Uh, yeah. She was also, uh, she also pled guilty. She uh, received, most of these um, cases are pretty much the same in terms of, you know, getting probation. Um, she did not access, she may have accessed some victim services, but not to the extent that Sherry Kabeen did. But she did cost a lot of money, so she also had to make restitution. But this was a case where people, you know, I think in all these cases, these women, people searched for them. I mean, everyone believed they were legitimately abducted, except for the last one. And this is the exception. Nod your head or raise your hand. Has anyone heard of Denise Huskins? Oh. We have an episode with an interview with Denise. I just had to get that in there. <laughs> I mean, her story is Denise Huskins um, was uh, spending the night over at her uh, then boyfriend, now husband, Aaron's home in, was it Vallejo? I think it was Vallejo. Um, when she was, they were, um, the house was intruded upon. There were people who came in, this was according to Denise and Aaron, um, they were blindfolded, they were separated. Um, Aaron was left unharmed, although you know, mentally harmed, but Denise was abducted for a period of 48 hours. And Denise, you know, there was a search for her, of course, but there were also early rumors, even during the search time, that it was a hoax. They didn't believe her. And when she showed up 48 hours later, seemingly unharmed, and I say seemingly because she was quite harmed, um, the police issued a statement saying that they did not believe her, they believed it was a hoax. In the time that she was gone, before they said it was a hoax, they thought Aaron had something to do with it. They thought he was either involved in abducting her or he was involved in the hoax. And the police went public immediately. They made, they made a press conference saying that these two were hoaxers. And there was no, you know, there was no assault. Now, it wasn't until uh, much later, a police officer, a female officer on another case, found um, a link to Denise Huskins. They, she found that there was an assailant, a male, um, I forget his name at the time, but seemingly someone who had flown under the radar, but he had assaulted someone else. And this police officer went so far as to have hair analyzed that was in his house, and it turned out it was the hair of Denise Huskins. So they were able to identify her assailant and bring him. He admitted it. Um, so he was brought to justice. Um, and Denise Huskins and Aaron went on to the police department. They settled for two and a half million dollars. Um, they also gone on to write a book that is one of the best books I have ever read in my life. It was so impactful. And she gave interviews and to 
tell their story. And they were both highly traumatized. But what was even worse, they said, was being traumatized by the police that they were not believed. And that was, you know, how these cases differ. And really quick, I just want to say, I think that the way the police um, treated Sherry as a result of Denise Huskins, they didn't want to be left with that on their face again. So that's why, for Sherry's case, they were treating it as if it was not a hoax, but unfortunately, it, it was. But in Denise's case, it was the opposite. So, but the book is called Victim F, and it's amazing because they wrote it together. So Aaron would tell his part of the story, like chronologically, like what he was going through as Denise was talking about what she was going through, and it, it's so well written. And they're they're an amazing couple. They're so yeah, they're so inspiring. have here with people that do this. Um, we found a few different things with researching this. Um, and, and of course, it's not just gone girling yourself. There's a lot of ways that people sort of plan their own victimizations and different motives that are there. Generally, it breaks down into two different needs for them or goals. And that's either that there's some sort of benefit to it or it's more of the attention-seeking part. So with a benefit, what I mean by that is some people do it for an alibi. They might lie and saying, I'm being victimized, and I was over here being perpetrated upon, so I couldn't have been doing X, Y, or Z over here. Um, sometimes it's to gain more sympathy, which I, I kind of put more in the benefit category than the attention category, even though they they are a little bit similar. Um, we have also, there's a lot of cases, especially when we were looking into this, we were looking at hate crimes that people falsely sort of perpetrate upon themselves. You have a category under attention that people are doing it for. But you also have people that were legitimate victims, but they felt like they weren't getting the response from law enforcement that they should have, that they then sort of take it up a notch to then get either media attention to it or have law enforcement take it a little bit more seriously. So Scott and I explored this when we were looking at the Jesse Smollett case when that had first happened. Um, is is how we started um, looking into the what we have of research here. But really, when you look at all of these types of cases together, you know, especially when we talk about these women and how similar their cases are, even all the way back to the 20s, there's some things going on for everyone here. And generally, you're seeing the desperation, the lack of coping, and the impulsivity, which is something that you know I think any person, if they're getting emotionally hijacked and they don't have really good ways of coping with that or good decision-making skills, that you then have a woman that doesn't want to let down 600 people at her wedding, and so she chooses to do this other very drastic thing. So yeah, like us all sitting here, we're like, this is crazy. Like, how? <laughs> Who would do something like that? But when you're backed into a corner and you feel like you're backed into a corner, that's your perspective. This is some of the stuff that we see going on with people who ultimately end up making that decision. Even though it's somewhat relative, I mean, for some of us, uh, the idea of like a wedding is that important to you? And but for some people, if this is your special day and you've spent your entire life 
focusing on this as being this wonderful thing and it's not for some reason, then you have to extricate yourself from it. So you you go through mental gymnastics or an individual will go, will go through these mental gymnastics in order to create an alternative that works for them. I love the, I, the four that we chose. I think that this is like a great combination to be able to separate Denise's case from someone who was victimized all the way around by the system and by the perpetrators. And then when we look at um, Sherry, Amy McPherson, Jennifer, and Quinn, what we have really highlights the impulsivity. Yeah. Because not everybody is Gillian Flynn, right? <laughs> Gillian Flynn is a brilliant author, and in Gone Girl, she creates this entire story about someone who's a psychopath. I mean, is a, nar a narcopath, a you know, narcissistic psychopath, who step by step goes through an intricate plan of laying a trap for the person that has betrayed her, even going so far as to, as, long, as soon as I know he's in prison, I'm going to kill myself and get rid of the body so that it can't be undone. So it's interesting, if there is a connection between some of these uh, self-victimizers and gone girling, they're not really thinking it out. Right to the yeah. best extent that they possibly can. It's not as rational either. Though right. We talk about rational choice. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right exactly. on time. So okay. Let's go back to Sherry. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to leave some of the. You, you discussed some of the motivations, and you're going to talk about some of the personality factors. Yes. Okay. Yes. Criminologically, how do we explain it? I think Sherry's probably better explained psychologically. Um, to be frank, I think there's more to delve into. However, a couple of our theories. Um, that we look at, rational choice theory. And this doesn't mean that all people are rational, by the way. Rational choice theory is the idea that people have to choose. They have steps. There's a sequence of choices that people make. There's planning, even if it's quick. Um, you heard about rationality, so you know, some people are constricted by time. Um, so Sherry did make a plan, and this took place over several months. She initiated contact. Um, they had evidence to show that step by step, whether it was a perfect plan, this is no gone girl, it was a plan. So, you know, this wasn't a spur of the moment thing for her. She had planned for a long time. Now, what happened? We look at strain theory. Um, there was a stressor, and, and Shiloh Ch Ch was right, but I don't know what the stressor specifically was for Sherry. Um, however, it could have been marital strain, pressure of children. Um, there was obviously some type of stressor, I think, on an already fragile woman. Um, so there was, she was set up, she had the, she had the disposition to react poorly because she probably couldn't cope with things. And then I likely think there was a strain, what we call strain theory, or a stressor that kind of triggered her, like it's go time, now I'm going to put my plan into place. Um, and I, I think you guys are going to talk a little bit more about yep. the psychological. Theory. Yes, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of history here with Sherry yes. to dive into. I mean, there definitely are. There's, there's history, there's flags, uh, things that you can look at are past, but at that very moment, what was the stressor for her? Hard to say. Well, and just because this is my job, Scott, we have 10 minutes left, okay. so okay. keep that in mind. So um, I think it's interesting to talk about how we can find the, the Venn diagram overlap here of the stressor. Mm -hmm. So initially when uh, Sherry's story is told, what you hear over and over again is what a perfect mother she is. And she's a super mom and she's always there to pick up her kids on time. Mm -hmm. So which is great, those are wonderful qualities. But I think that people tend to forget that when you're, I, I really 
really invested heavily in the presentation of a particular type of identity, right. that in itself becomes a strain. Mm -hmm. That is a stressor. Yeah. Especially if you have some other stuff going on, which clearly she had some other serious stressors happening. So I'm, I'm just going to surmise that likely the strain of keeping up this gotcha. particular uh, identity presentation or affect might have been what caused it. But as more research came out, what we find out is that she had a really significant history. Um, she had a history within her family of engaging in self-harming behaviors, um, even going so far as to blame her mother during interactions. And mother had like very positive regard for her daughter, except when she does this. Oh no, she's really great. Except, well, you know, she did vandalize our other daughter's door. No, she's a really great daughter, except she accessed my husband's bank account. <laughs> She stole money. money, you know. So there's this back and forth of really caring about your child, clearly. But the conflict that comes when they're engaging in these really increasingly crazy behaviors. So I want to be really careful too, because we're not here to diagnose in this capacity. And like, it's always easy just to place a label on somebody, right? It's so easy to say, well, this person's histrionic, this person's borderline, this person's a psychopath. And in reality. A lot of the presenting behaviors that we see in these kind of criminal cases, it may very well be a, a legitimate diagnosis, or it could be a result of long-term trauma. We don't necessarily have an indication that Sherry was traumatized, but again, there is a history of really concerning behaviors that likely went under the radar because she was a typically sort of um, generalized, accepted, good-looking, middle-class woman who's blonde, right? Yeah. Which I think opens a lot of doors in, in our current society. So, one or of the things... closes doors to people questioning her behavior. That's great. Yes, absolutely. So, really, some poor decision-making skills were known historically. Her first husband, who were... Apparently, they had a very short, very very uh, contentious relationship. He's like, I'm out of here. And there's indications that they had some sort of agreement to get married in order for her to have insurance. She needed insurance because she was having health problems that were emerging from her selling too many of her eggs. Um, she was, you know, it stresses a woman's body out incredibly to do that. And there was a history of her going beyond what the medical recommendations for this were. Um, she also had, this was completely buried and only came up in like some a deep dive I was able to do, is that at age 20, she was working as a camp counselor and initiated and sustained a relationship with a 15-year-old. Now, I'm not going to say a diagnosis, but I'm going to say when we look at a situation like this, it immediately takes us to an understanding of a personality disorder called histrionic which is very, very much um, encapsulates a number of behaviors, or a constellation of behaviors, because you love when I use that word, that are very much attention-seeking, um, very much, and the attention-seeking serves a purpose, like Dr. Shia was talking. There is a, a narcissistic drive in all of us, and we have either a little smidge of it, or we have a lot of it, and we need that source of energy. We need reflection from the outside world that we are a worthy person, or that we are are a wonderful person or that we're superpower. You know, you can go from relatively benign to almost delusional about this. And once again, we're starting to see layers of information coming up that she was driven by a lot of need for uh, 
positive regard. Um, what else would we say? Uh, now, something else too that gets into also some characterological things I think are interesting is how she portrayed her captors. You saw earlier in the slide very uh, stereotypical and racist assumptions about two Hispanic women. Um, even from the beginning, after she came back, she was describing how bad their hygiene was, how dirty the car was that she was transported in, how it smelled awful. So they're all, she's really trying to paint this picture of these two evil Hispanic women kidnapping her. And that sustained sort of this kidnap theory for a while. And then in even further going back to the age of MySpace, she was known for posting incredibly racist screeds, um, painting herself as sort of like a, what's it called in literature? Uh, no, Mary Suing herself. If you're familiar with the term Mary Sue, to make yourself the hero of your own story. She posted that when she was in high school that she was, she was victimized by all the Hispanic girls who were so jealous of her blonde beauty. And like almost a mini manifesto that she had posted. So she tried to hide that. Um, and then she also posted that would probably today would go on Reddit under that that happened, you know, which is a, a Reddit thread about things that clearly did not happen. Um, where she claims that she was beaten up because uh, her father was a Nazi. For some reason, she just decided to talk the story that she was being marginalized because she was a, you know, to use a Harry Potter term, she was a pure blood. So again, um, kind of going down into diagnostic considerations if we were going to go that way. Definitely attention-seeking behaviors, a, a complete willingness to misrepresent objective truth, a willingness to double down, as we've all said, and every time she was shown evidence, she would make up another lie, a lot like... Uh, God, who was, what was the Florida case? The child. No, Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony just will not admit, just keeps going, keeps going. And even talk about like toddler level of impulsivity and and uh, mind functioning. When they come to pick her up and arrest her, she stomps her foot, yells no, and runs. <laughs> like most people, when you're surrounded by law enforcement, you're going to, oh shit, my gig's up, yeah. right? I mean, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm done. So again, there's also a very important aspect that I think a lot of us can probably, I'll, I'll talk about this as in sort of a private practice, um, and doing marriage and family theory, therapy uh, example. So when people are going through rocky times in their relationships, you'll find one thing that happens is they go, you know, he really liked me in high school. I wonder what he's doing now. <laughs> she was great. I'm going to go Facebook stalk. And then they will reach out because what that does is it provides a parasocial relationship, much like I have my two favorite podcasts, those, like, oh, they're my best friends. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, you, you, you get first tips. But, um, but we do this. We, we sort of um, enhance our memory of previous relationships because what that does is it gives us almost that vampiric, narcissistic source. Like, yeah, she was really into me. Oh, yeah, he thought I was the bomb back then, right? <laughs> so I'm going to reconnect with him. So here what we, do, we see is Sherry goes back to that narcissistic source. And I'm sorry, uh, I apologize for saying this. What a dumbass he was. He went along with her. You want me to throw a hockey puck at you? Is that what you want? Okay, you, Sherry. You want, right? What I'll she try did. Yeah. yeah, right. 
that she victimized when he was 15. And interestingly enough, those char- there's, that has not gone outside the statute of limitations. She could be, still be charged for that. Um, he, he's now an adult, and he's come forward, you know, came out during the Me Too movement and was motivated by this and said, she's a compulsive liar. She would talk to you for three or four days, and then suddenly there'd be some fantastical story about what happened. So here we have somebody that really, for the need for attention, has she's characterologically driven towards not being truthful, and it culminated in this event. Yeah, I mean, it's classic previous behavior predicting future behavior. I mean, it, you know, you, you see Sherry's face on the surface, and you're like, what? Like, what, what was Why? the strain? What was the stressor? Why? But then you go back and you look at this history of the compulsive lying and the attention seeking um, and the racism, and it all kind of fits together with this one event. Which brings us to the end, right? Where are we today? Yep. Well, if we finally <laughs> right? I just want to say one thing. The sentencing was supposed to happen on July 11th. So we are prepared to dissect the sentencing. But it, like, it always is. It's pushed back to September 19th. So that is, I just wanted to throw that piece in. But statutorily, according to statute, he is facing 25 years. That's the max. Now, that's a lot. It's a lot of years. But the prosecutor is recommending, along with the defense, eight months. <laughs> Just the reaction is open for. Um, so I guess I were. Uh, so. Yes. With eight months, let's just go. Let's go with eight months because it's a recommendation right now. And do you both are recommending it? It'll probably okay. happen. So, do you think the criminal justice system got it right? No. Don't shake your head. You're giving them signals. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Oh gosh, I wish I could see these better. Hang on. Equally important, the Hispanic. Uh, yep. I can't even. Nope. I just see a lot of no's. I want to read that very. <laughs> so many levels because okay. we're talking about just pulling in since you know we work in conjunction with law enforcement in Los Angeles and what's pounded into my head all the time is the idea of it's not a, an unlimited resource if you take away law enforcement to put it on this that means there's less available for other things that go down and then just the finances alone is becomes quickly becomes astronomical especially for smaller more rural areas and also they were looking for these two Hispanic women so Many people were, you know, they are, yeah, they are, you know, they would be sleeping with their children in their homes, and the police would be banging down their doors. You can't. It, there's so much harm that was done yeah. to so many people. Not to mention, obviously, her children, her family, the community at large, the Hispanic community specifically. Somebody said, "What about the lying friends?" He was not. He was cooperative, and I think they gave him immunity because yeah. he wanted to testify against her. They needed to leverage him. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right, well, right. look, I mean, that, that brings up a, a really 
frustrating, um, frustrating is a great word, that's a great aspect to it, is how many indigenous women disappeared from the southern Canada border and the north part of the U.S. over the past three months? It's okay. over a hundred. Have we, have we heard about it? I found it like on the third page of the search the other day. Yeah. You know, so this is another example where women of color, particularly people of color, but also women of color, they, their cases are not focused on with the same level of scrutiny by law enforcement. It's incredibly frustrating. And because of her, real victims that come forward, like Denise Huskins type of, you know, people, we're always going to be wondering, is this a hoax? Because Sherry Fakini, you know, now it's like the boy who cried wolf, you know, now, and she's ruining it for a lot of victims are now going to have to face extra scrutiny because of her story. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, maybe a couple minutes for questions. I know the next presenters need to get in here, but does anyone have anything we can answer at the end here? Yes. So the question was, would her personality allow her to see the harm that she has caused? She put out a statement. What did the statement say? I don't have it on She put out a statement, and I don't know if it's true, but she said that I am so deeply ashamed of what I have done. I will have to work the rest of my life to make this up to my family, to people who search for me. I will forever be sorry. Something to that extent. And her husband so did file for divorce. Immediately. Well, custody, well, finally, not yeah. immediately. Oh, I thought he was right oh, after no, that. Not until 2020, you know, oh. when yeah. That is very difficult about personality disorders is, um, you know, we for years in clinical work we've thought of them as strictly the result of trauma um, and and nothing else. And certainly that plays a big role. But in the last five years, because of our advanced brain scanning, we are now finding out that there are genetic predispositions to organicity in the brain that makes people more likely to develop a personality disorder if they're in a certain uh, environment. Or even sometimes wonderful parents, wonderful support system, but they still have the warrior gene and the brain structure for psychopathy. This seems to be a case somewhat like that. And my, my response to you would be, I think that was a really beautifully constructed, well-pressed statement about shame. She's hitting on the important words, shame, won't be able to make it up to my family. She's saying what needs to be said. Does she actually feel it? I don't know if she's capable of it. I, I would say someone who has really strong narcissistic or histrionic tendencies, borderline people usually know there's a storm inside themselves and they realize there is something effed up in me and I don't know if I can never get enough treatment for it, but I know it's there. Histrionic and narcissistic, well, narcissists, like, why would they care? They're the best thing in the world, right? Histrionic is so engaged, so heavily engaged in that validation of who they are as a person. I would, I would doubt that in a situation like this, with a character like this, that they would be able to have that level of insight. And it's really sad because they're they're seeing the world, they're living the world in black and white, and we all get the benefit of seeing in color, if that makes any sense. Do you think even with him, with them saying, okay, if you tell us, we're not going to prosecute, do you think that that's fair to me? I mean, should be, we're not going to charge you, we'll give you this instead if you tell so us what happened. The question is, was it fair not to prosecute her boyfriend, the other party, um, for, in, in exchange for immunity? Do I think he's guilty of something? 
though he, when he found out, I don't think he initially knew what was going to happen, yeah. but when he found out, he should have come forward. So do I think it's fair? No, but it happens every day. It's just a practical, who do you want to get? And they needed him, so. And you know, what surprised me about that is that they give him immunity. Yeah. So you, I, I would expect, and this is where maybe my knowledge base is not as extensive as yours, but you're going to give him immunity, but she's only going to get eight months. Like, you're thinking that immunity is going to mean because they're yeah. going to go after the full exactly. 20 years or something. It usually does mean that. So it, it is surprising. Okay. okay. Yeah, well, that's definitely surprising. But she is going to have to pay back a lot of money. I hope so. So although it's only going to be eight months, I'm, I, from what I understand, she's going to be forced to pay back all the law enforcement. I also think they just wanted to make an example of her. I think they wanted, they just wanted to kill people. Tell the truth. We wanted everyone right. to Right. Right. All right. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled behind the couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. 